our brains are hardwired for stories. Stories are how we make sense of the world. Even small, everyday events get shared, get talked about over the dinner table in the form of stories. God knows this. So when God reveals himself to us, he does so primarily through stories. And not just a string of little stories, but one great big story. A story that's big enough to include and make sense of our individual stories. Just as when we're born into a family and we inherit a story that predates us, in Christ we become the inheritors of God's story. Through faith, the big story of God creating and losing, pursuing and saving his children, becomes just as much your story and my story as Adam and Eve's, Abraham and Jacob's, Moses' and Miriam's. This morning we're going to zoom in on a chapter of the big story that more than any other becomes Israel's defining moment and the fulcrum of their history. So let's dive into Exodus chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pytham and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, wrongfully accused by his boss's wife, had to work himself from prisoner up to head of Egypt's state department. His family, stricken with famine in their homeland, were given greed cards by the Egyptian government. But as often happens, gratitude and mercy give way to fear in the hearts and minds of a dominant culture. Their obsession with national security leads them to despise the other, to oppress and enslave them, and eventually they developed a state-sponsored infanticide campaign to suppress Hebrews' population. So there they were as slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Let's not gloss over that fact. This is one of the most troubling troubling facts that we bump into in this big story. Why would God allow his family, his people, his prized possession to suffer such injustice for so long? 
Some suggest perhaps that God had been waiting for them to pray, waiting for them to cry out before uh, rescuing them. Others suggest that God's timing was perfect. His people needed to reach a certain critical mass before they could go and take possession of the promised land. And while either or both of these could be true, the explanations miss the point. Slavery and oppression are ugly and wrong. They are a scourge on God's planet. And for 430 years, it's all the Hebrew people knew. All they experienced of God was absence and silence. Eugene Peterson, a favorite spiritual mentor of mine, passed away last week. He writes, The vast story of salvation is not a whitewash. There are stretches of time when nothing remotely like salvation seems to be happening. This seemingly unending stretch of the experience of the absence of God is reproduced in most of our lives. And most of us don't know what to make of it. Whether it's measured in weeks, months, or years, for most of us it doesn't fit into what is normal in our understanding of salvation. But it is normal. Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. Meditating devoutly on God's word does not establish us securely in the arms of Jesus, does not insulate us from all feelings of abandonment and darkness. Even Jesus, when he hung upon the cross, took Psalm 22 upon his lips, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. 55%, more than half of the Psalms, give voice to these experiences of absence and silence. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Peterson continues, These witnesses to the experience of God's absence are enormously important. They are necessary to keep us alert and attentive to the mystery of God whose ways are past our finding out. Necessary to prevent us from reducing Almighty God to God at my beck and call. Necessary to place discipline constraints on our collective spiritual sweet tooth. Any understanding of God that does not take into account God's silence is a half-truth. In effect, a cruel distortion, and it leaves us vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation by leaders who are quite willing to fill in the biblical blanks with what the Holy Spirit never tells us.
In other words, without the experience of God's hiddenness, we would assume that we have the power to domesticate God, to keep him on a leash, to boss him around. God's silence reminds us that we are not in control of history as much as we want to be. I was talking with a friend recently who's been asking me a lot of questions about Christianity. She, she wanted to know if my spirituality had at all been influenced um, by people on the margins, which is a really good question. Because the fact is, winners get to write the history books, don't they? I mean, we learn about early American uh, settlers from Puritans and, uh, and pilgrims, not so much from Abenaki and Iroquois. We know a lot more about Egypt and and Rome and Greece than we do about the cultures that they defeated and absorbed. That's just the way of it. And in the Exodus story, there's, there's no escaping the fact that Egypt was a superpower. The greatest empire that exist that had existed on planet Earth up to that point. The pyramids built by slaves in order to preserve the Pharaoh and launch him into eternity as a god, stand today as witnesses to Egypt's power and oppression. But the book of Exodus was not written by the Pharaoh. It was written by slaves. In fact, and I share this with my friend, most of the Bible is written by history's losers. Slaves and exiles the occupied and the persecuted and the incarcerated. In many ways, the Bible shows us what history looks like from the bottom up. No wonder Christianity has always resonated so deeply with the poor, the persecuted, and slaves. Most of the time, God accomplishes his purposes through human weakness in out-of-the-way places, bypassing the halls of power. And that's why the book of Exodus doesn't even bother to give us the Pharaoh's name. But it gives us the name of two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. They were commanded by the Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew babies, but they refused. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Sometimes the part God gives us to play is that of conscientious objector. Pharaoh doubled down and gave orders to all of his people, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. When Moses was born, his parents hid him for three months. Then... They obeyed the Pharaoh's order. They floated him down the Nile in a basket covered with pitch. He was spotted by Pharaoh's daughter who rescued and adopted him. 
He grew up in the Pharaoh's courts and was given a world-class education. But none of this was easy for Moses. Ethnically, he was not an Egyptian. And culturally, he was not a Hebrew. He didn't fit in with anyone. One day, when he was an adult, Moses went down to one of the slave labor sites where he sees an Egyptian beating ruthlessly a Hebrew slave. And so he becomes incensed on behalf of his people and thinking that nobody is watching, he kills the Egyptian and hides his body. But evidently someone had been watching and the word spread. And one day Moses sees his face on a wanted poster and so he flees for Midian. Makes a life for himself among the Hebrew people as a fugitive and a shepherd. And one day he's tending his father-in-law's sheep and he sees something very strange. A bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. So walking a little bit closer to the action, he begins to hear a voice. It's God's. And Moses instinctively hides his face. God speaks. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's great, says Moses. When do we leave? God says, not so fast. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to release my people. And two things happen at that burning bush. God tells Moses his name, and Moses objects to being sent by God to Pharaoh. Early on in the conversation, Moses asks God, well, what do I tell the people when they ask me who sent me? And God says, well, you tell them, I will be who I will be sent you. In the ancient Near East, names were really, really important. They were your identity. And in the ancient Near East, to know a God's name meant that you had power, at least some, over that God. To speak a God's name was to summon him, to control him, to wield him. But the Hebrew God is different. His name is, I will be who I will be. I am not like the other gods. I can't be controlled. I can't be domesticated. I am wild and free beyond your ability to understand and manipulate. But I am also personal and present. And I've heard you and I love you and I've come to save you. Now, Moses wants nothing to do with this assignment. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will go with you. Go to your people. Tell them the plan. But what if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they think I'm crazy for talking to a bush? God says, I will empower you to do incredible things so that they will believe that I have sent you. And Moses objects again, but I have a speech impediment. And God says, I will help you to speak clearly and effectively. And finally, Moses says, you know what? I appreciate what you're doing, but send someone else. So God, at this point, completely exasperated, says, all right, fine. 
your brother Aaron will go with you. He's on his way now, but this negotiation is over. Moses is um, <laughs> he's anxious. He's reluctant. He's riddled with self-doubt. Probably what you would expect from someone who never fit in. I'm fairly certain that ZipRecruiter could have found at least a few thousand candidates who are more qualified than Moses. I mean, Moses checks off all the wrong boxes, doesn't he? Zero confidence, no ambition, no five-year plan, poor communication skills, failed his Corey check, blacklisted by the very government he's supposed to go and entreat with. This is God's choice. For real? His only qualification is that he's unqualified. And maybe that's the point. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers. So Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh, and what follows is this long, long narration that we call the ten plagues. And the purpose of the plagues is often misunderstood. They were not acts of judgment on the Egyptians. They weren't punishments on this culture. Their purpose was to discredit Pharaoh's claim to sovereignty. To answer the question once and for all, who really runs things down here? Who's really in charge? The only time that the word judgment is used in the whole narrative is with reference to Egypt's gods. Eugene Peterson says, Egypt had developed and perfected one of the most impressive god games of all. Dominating the landscape, dominating the imaginations of people far and near, a totalitarian society ruled by a dictator whom everyone believed was also a god. Everything about Egypt reinforced this. It's art and architecture, its vast storehouses of gold, its impressive army, not to mention its ever-widening political sovereignty. Egypt just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And here's where Peterson says something really profound, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. It says, the Hebrews hated being slaves. They hated their role in Egypt's system, but it was the only reality they ever knew. It was impossible for them to imagine anything else. So how was Moses going to rip off the veneer of this power and majesty and beauty and success and expose it as evil so that when he led his people out of Egypt, they wouldn't carry their Egyptian experience with them for the rest of their lives? So they wouldn't reproduce Egypt's system as soon as they were in charge. If their imaginations were not thoroughly cleansed of this evil that they were immersed in for 430 years, they would end up doing the very same thing as soon as they were in power themselves. Oppressing the weak, trampling on the helpless, bullying those under them with might and size in the name of whatever gods were available. And this is where the plagues come in. The ten plagues were employed to expose the emptiness of evil, to purge the Hebrew minds of all envious admiration of of evil, to systematically demolish every God illusion or God pretension that evil uses to exercise power. Each plague 
was an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds for just such a cleaning. An elaborate exorcism. A casting out of demons that freed the Hebrew imagination so that they could hear and follow their Savior and worship him. For over 400 years, they had lived in a world that fused political power and religious myth to form a demonic culture of arrogance and privilege for a few and slavery and degradation for many. And this way of experiencing the world had penetrated deep into their genes. Radical surgery was required to get it out, and the ten plagues were that surgery. Tracking? So one by one they came. Blood, frogs, mosquitoes, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death. That final plague would live on in Israel's memory forever. The night before they left Egypt for good, God commanded them to prepare a meal. He said, take a lamb, one without any spots, no defects, slaughter it. Paint the door frames of your houses with blood from the lamb. Roast the lamb, eat it. Serve it with some bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Burn whatever you don't eat. Be ready to go in the morning. That night, God swept through Egypt and struck down the firstborn, both people and animals. But when he saw the blood painted on the doors of the Hebrews' homes, he passed over their houses, sparing them. And then Pharaoh brought to his knees with humiliation and grief, finally relents and commands the Hebrews to go. Moses and the people are ready. God leads them out. He leads them eastward, where they set up camp by the sea, just as the Pharaoh changes his mind. Enraged by the loss of his free labor, he sends his best chariots out into the desert to track down the Hebrews, round them up, and bring them back. Now we're in Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love the Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs who says, Israel failed to believe right up to the moment of their deliverance. And you know the rest. God moves the cloud of his Shekinah glory between the Hebrews and the Egyptians and blocks their way. Then Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. 
And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, but the wheels of their chariots jammed into the seabed. Moses again stretched out his hands and the waves crashed upon the Egyptian soldiers. None survived. When they reached the other side safely, they began to sing. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. It was an instant classic. It became Israel's national anthem. What shall we make of this story? What is this story about? The Exodus story is about salvation. Namely, it is about the God who saves. The God who is moved by compassion, who enters history, and who delivers his people. Eugene Peterson says, all the critical verbs in the Exodus story are powered by God. Yeah, the people cry out and complain. Moses obeys a few orders, but God, and God only, does the salvation work. God saves. And modern people don't like this. We find this offensive. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own saviors. We have a million and one different self-salvation projects. Politics, education, technology, personal achievement, the accumulation of wealth, romantic love, you name it. None of these pursuits is bad in and of themselves. They just don't go deep enough. They mask rather than deal with our true brokenness, our true need. The reason God saves is because God must do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Israel could not save themselves from Egyptian oppression any more than we can save ourselves of our chronic self-absorption. We need help from the outside. And again, often modern people say, well, that whole worldview... That whole mindset just leads to passivity, right? If God does everything, what are we supposed to do? Like sit on our hands? It's disempowering. I don't want to believe that. But this criticism betrays a wholly inadequate understanding of the nature of salvation. Salvation is not a one-night stand. It's just the beginning of a relationship. It's like saying, I do. Israel was saved so that they could live and flourish in their own land and show the nations a new way to be human by doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God and inviting them to get in on it. Jesus saves sinners so that we can live and flourish in his kingdom and show the world a new way to be human by loving and serving our neighbors and seeking their good no matter who they are or what they believe so that we could be empowered by the Spirit of God to become peacemakers and reconcilers in a world that's marred by division and hostility and conflict, so that we could be God's agents of restoration, creating homes and neighborhoods and communities where all kinds of people can flourish, a preview of the world to come on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound passive to you? Were Joseph, Moses, David, and Nehemiah passive? What about Ruth and Naomi, Abigail and Esther? Far from it. 
We may not work on our salvation, but we do work out our salvation. As Dallas Willard used to say, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. God saves precisely in order to activate us like never before. It's fascinating to me that the whole concept of salvation, of a God who saves, was completely unique to Israel in the ancient Near Eastern world. No other culture shared this idea that salvation was God's work. The other gods, all the, all the gods who stood behind these different cultures in that world, were angry and in constant need of appeasement. But Israel's God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. See the difference? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, he's not like the other gods. And I wonder if you're here this morning and so far you've been pretty turned off by religion. Feels like a lot of rules designed to control people, restrict their freedoms. I mean, who wants to have a relationship with a God who's just waiting for you to break one of his rules so he can pounce on you and punish you? I don't want that either. But that's not the God that the big story invites us to know. Check this out. In Exodus 14, God saves Israel. Done finished. In Exodus 20, God gives Israel the law. Friends, the order matters because it means that God doesn't save people because they follow the rules. They didn't even know the rules when he saved them. God saves because God is merciful and good. Religion says, if I obey then I'll be accepted. But the gospel says I am accepted on the basis of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, I will gladly obey him. Religion says I am a sinner, but if I serve God well enough and long enough and consistently enough, maybe he'll save me. The gospel says I am a sinner, saved by grace, Therefore, I will serve God with my life, not out of fear, not out of compulsion, not to make him love me, but for the sheer joy and gratitude for what he's done for me in Jesus.